0: This episode of Paper Team is brought to you by Roadmap Writers. Roadmap Writers gives screenwriters the tools needed to take their skills to the next level, with courses taught by industry executives. In just two years, Roadmap has helped 49 writers find representation. Visit RoadmapWriters.com and use the code ROADMAP, all caps, all one word, to save $15 off your first program.
1: Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm
0: Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson.
1: And today we're going to talk about VR and emerging forms of storytelling with Michael Masakawa, manager of strategy and business development at Secret Location, a VR content and distribution studio owned by E1 Entertainment. Welcome, Michael.
2: Hi, thanks for having me. Glad to have you on. All right, let's
1: get started.
0: All right, so first up, how'd you get your start in the industry and how'd you end up in LA? I originally
2: wanted to be a writer. I wanted either to either be a attorney who writes on the side or a cool history professor who gets right. And um, uh, so I ended up taking a screenwriting class the uh, last quarter of my freshman year. And uh, in that class, you're supposed to outline a feature, write the first 15 pages. Uh, I ended up writing 23, really loved it, and ended up finishing that feature the summer before uh, second year. I didn't want to be a waiter hoping that Harvey Weinstein or someone, you know, maybe different, different a <laughs> bad example, uh, bad <laughs> yeah. example. Uh, ho- hoping that a uh, hotshot sh- hot Hollywood producer or director walked up to my table and I could pitch them my feature. So instead, I thought that, you know, it'd be better to work in the business and do it that way and also kind of see how my writing stacked up to scripts and television pilots that were being sold and see if they're good enough. So my first goal was to just get as many internships as possible and read and see how my writing compared. It's tough to get your first internship without internship experience. So the way I ended up getting my first internship was I went to a birthday dinner for my dad's friend who was turning like 50. And she, she'd she walked a marathon for breast cancer research with the head of the story department at Columbia Pictures. So my dad was like, you know, go, go talk to her mm-hmm. and ended up getting an interview that way um, at the interview. There was a movie poster in the room of the story editor um, who worked for her, not, not the woman I met at the dinner. That was uh, for this movie called Ichi the Killer by Takashi Mike, this Japanese yeah. director who mm-hmm. makes a lot of messed up Japanese horror movies. Understated. And and, uh, and I recognized the movie. I didn't say I love it. And then um, the other assistant walked in and was like, you know, Michael already got the internship. He loves Ichi the Killer. I was like, okay. Uh, but... <laughs> So uh, yeah, and did my first internship from there. And then yeah, once I had one on the board, uh, e- easier to apply and get other ones along the way. So went back to the Sony internet at Red Wagon, for a lot of good people interned at Davis Entertainment, and then started at ICM fall quarter my senior year, and then started in the MP talent department. Definitely realized the talent was not for me, um, but but at least got to see the process from their perspective where they didn't really care if the script was good or not. Let's just read the script, break down the roles, and let's try to find a movie for John Hamm because uh, they represented <laughs> him during Mad Men. And uh, we got a million dollar arm, but I think I understand why he went to the CAA uh, afterwards. Right. But so, yeah, started an MP talent, heard that TV lit was the best department going on at ICM. There was a floater who had stolen my intern computer the first day, and he ended up getting a desk in TV Lit. And this other MP Lit assistant told me to go talk to him. So I talked to him, and he's like, Sure, you know, you could be my intern. That'd be great. And I'd been kind of waiting for HR to introduce me to TV Lit weeks weeks. Uh, never happened, but I uh, was able to kind of get this meeting on my own. Went back to HR, and they were a little perturbed at what I did. But mm-hmm. uh, nevertheless, I was able to secure a role in TV Lit, interned there for two more quarters. When I was ready to graduate, I kind of thought this was, you know, with each internship, you know, at the studio, I learned a lot. Production company, I read and did a lot of coverage, learned more. At an agency, just felt so much was going on. There was all the pilot pickups and the and the TV uh, lit kind of script closet there. Um, I just felt like I was going to be able to learn the most over there and have, have the most contacts. So I went to HR said, I'd like to get a, get a job there when I started. And, you know, I said, you know, so do 30 other interns, Michael. <laughs> so I uh, went back to MP Talent, the agents that I interned for, asked for a letter of recommendation, the TV lead agent I interned for called HR, put in a good word. You know, I kind of formally reapplied, had an interview with the head of HR, and uh, got a job in the mailroom that summer after I graduated.
0: It must be such a huge leg up to have already worked at a studio in a production company and an agency by the time you even stepped out of college compared to some people who are just kind of showing up with nothing.
2: Yeah. I, th- I think, you know, it's just kind of the virtue of being in LA. I went to UCLA and just geographically desirable to get all those internships. And before I had a car, you know, I was able to take a bus and yeah. get an internship and and read and do my homework.
1: how that um, <laughs> about taking the bus in LA. That's uh, quite the uh, endeavor. Yeah. So how did you transition from those positions into working in TV development?
2: At an agency, it's kind of a numbers game and working in the mailroom and then eventually the floater pool. I really wanted to work on a lit desk. I either wanted to work in motion picture lit or television lit. And- It's kind of like, if there's 20 agents in MPLit, make friends with all the assistants and hope that when one of them leaves, that they tell you that you can interview for the desk, don't count on HR, and (laughs) just try to get that interview. So um, my first nine months, I only got two interviews, Um, both went to assistants who had former desk experience. And I was at ICM when they were transitioning from ICM to ICM partners. So what happened was they actually uh, either, you know, a bunch of agents left, or they let go of a bunch of lit agents at the time. So just number-wise, it was harder to get a desk. And after nine months, you kind of become a floater for eternity, and you know, something happens or it doesn't. Um, but said HR grabbed me and said, uh, there's a position open in contract admin that we want you to do. You're good at research. So we're going to create this new position for you to update the entire contact database for the company as we're becoming ICM partners. So the title was Contact Administrator, which I thought was kind of weird. So I ended up hmm. changing it in my email signature to head of contacts because yeah. I was the only person doing it. So they kind of said, you could have this position. You're, you're still able to interview for desks. And around that time, there's a couple of these kind of tracking boards I was on. One was called Awesome Assistance, a Facebook group. And I wanted to try to get the networking experience out of this position that I would as a lit assistant. So as people were looking for contact information or scripts, if I had them early, I'd kind of share them with them and then ask the person to drinks. And that kind of just helped my networking At an agency, even though I wasn't in that classical position that I wanted. Over time, it kind of became clear that I wasn't going to get a desk at ICM, no matter what I tried. So I started interviewing for other things. But again, there's kind of that asterisk on my resume where it's, I have the agency experience, but not agency assistant desk experience. Desk assistant, yeah. Yeah, so it it was kind of tough. Kind of parallel to this, I was in this organization called CAPE, which is the Coalition of Asian Pacifics and Entertainment. My first internship boss had been like a founding board member of the organization and bought me my first year membership. So I've been going to kind of panels, different events that they did throughout the year. And at one of these events, the CAPE assistant, I just spent a little extra time talking to her when I was checking in. So while I was at ICM looking around for a new job, she remembered that i was looking and the president of cape uh, steve Tao, was moving over to bad robot to become a television executive so that was how i was able to get that interview yeah you never know where an interview is going to come from and uh, you know who you're going to talk to and network what that's yeah. going to lead to something but of, of all the things i'd interviewed for what you have to do is you kind of have to have people call in and give a reference so you do the interview if you really liked it maybe you mail in a, a thank you note some people don't even do that. Some people do a follow-up email. I think, you know, they look at it, delete it, forget about it. So I like to kind of send a note. And then you have your references call in. You know, I check with my, my references and said, hey, you know, I interviewed for this person. Would you be able to call and put in a good word? And either they're like, I'm sorry, I don't know that person. So sometimes you just don't get any references to call in. But this happened to be the kind of the perfect alignment where I interviewed, really, really wanted the job. The next day I had three references call in on my behalf. Didn't hear back the day after I had like two more call in. And one writer who worked with him emailed him, didn't hear back. The third day, I had one final reference call in. And at the end of that day, I got the job. That's something I feel like a lot of people underutilize is the network they already have to propel themselves
1: forward for the next job. So that's awesome advice.
2: Yeah. So from there, 2013 was actually kind of like my craziest year in Hollywood. I had four different jobs. So uh, (laughs) I was at ICM till February. Bad Robot was a fantastic job from February till May Kind of, there's some changes going on in the TV department, so I was let go. But a couple months later, there was a woman in the ABC Talent and Diversity department who had been trying to get me interviews there before when I was at ICM, but just my resume wasn't up to par yet to get those interviews. But now that I had something on my resume that was relevant, I was able to get an interview at ABC Studios. I uh, worked in the current programming department over there for a couple of months. It was a temp position, so that ended in October and right before the holiday as you know there's no way i'm gonna get a new job but there's a different tracking board i was on that had a networking breakfast i went to this breakfast there's only five people there so it was a really good opportunity to really get to know some people very well one of the guys at that breakfast worked at this company called Sonar Entertainment, and they were starting up an LA office. So he posted the job. Maybe a day later, after the breakfast, I ended up interviewing. He said, uh, "Give me a list of your references to email." And they emailed and put in a good word, and I ended up getting that job and started December first, all in that same year. So, <laughs> uh, I, and and I learned yeah a lot about television development, both from a production company, you know, Bad Robot being a very valued production company at a big studio. One uh, Brothers Television, and being a very valued client by CAA and all these different agents who would come in and um, do formal staffing meetings where they'd kind of walk through their staffing book and pitch clients to us, not the same experience I would get at other places later on down the line, but kind of being a very, yeah, kind of plum production company to a, a studio, you know, owned by Disney, um, ABC Studios, we were on the third floor ABC The Network was on the 10th floor, and just kind of seeing the kind of studio network politics in that job, and then moving over to Sonar Entertainment, which is an independent television studio, similar to Entertainment One, where I work now.
0: So tell us a little bit about what that was like working at Sonar in development, and the development process.
2: At, At Sonar, we were transitioning from, it was formerly RHI Entertainment, which made... I believe over 200 hours of television movies and miniseries, uh, most of what was on the Hallmark Channel. Mm-hmm. So every couple of years, Hallmark had to come to us and say, "Hey, we we want our TV movies, <laughs> we want all our programming back. So we'll you know pay you guys for the next you know three years, five years, whatever the agreement was." And it was about kind of distributing those titles worldwide, Europe, um, Asia, wherever. So we were transitioning from kind of the TV movie business into scripted programming, and I got to see the challenges of. What it's like at an independent studio to get something going. So, at ABC Studios, ABC had every interest because they're owned by, we're all owned by the same company, they had every interest in ordering pilots and projects from us. At an independent studio, you have to make the argument why you should order something from the studio that has no kind of affiliation with your uh, corporate overlord. And also, you can't afford to make a bunch of pilots that don't go to series. So, studios shoulder the cost of a television pilot, whether that's $8 million, whatever it is, the network will pay a portion of that. But if it doesn't go to series, you're four, four million in the hole. So we really, our strategy was to get straight to series orders. And to do that, we, I ended up working on a show called the Shannara Chronicles. What we did was we got to the highest internationally selling fantasy series of all time. We got John Favreau attached to direct. We got the showrunners... Ellen Miles, who did Smallville. We paid them to write the first two episodes, kind of a either you know two-hour pilot or the first two episodes, however you want to look at it, and a series bible. And we had all those materials to go pitch um, before we can get a series order. So we ended up getting an order at MTV to series. Uh, in the meantime, John Favreau got the opportunity to go direct Jungle Book, so he fell off. Then suddenly the series is in danger. We end up getting Jonathan Leesman attached to direct instead, and John Favreau stayed on to executive produce. So everything was Okay. But one of those tough situations where, um, as an independent studio, you're kind of overpaying up front to mm-hmm. assemble that undeniable package to get a series order. And there's no guarantee that it's actually going to get in a series order. So later on down the line, we ended up doing a show called Mr. Mercedes that ended up living on the at and Audience Network. But at the beginning, what that package looked like was a script from David E. Kelly. Um, you know, one of the biggest uh, showrunner creators, uh, Big Little Lies. Most recently, Boston Legal. A mm-hmm. bunch of stuff in the past. Mm-hmm. Terribly talented guy. So him, Jack Bender to direct, and a new novel by Stephen King. So we had to pay a lot to assemble that package get the script written before we go out and pitch that to networks. In the ABC studios, other people like, you know, they have a lot of overall deals, and they could just take one of the writers creators off of their roster and hear pitches from their overall deals and get series that way. But as an independent studio, you really have to assemble an undeniable package to get a straight to series order. And that was really what the challenge was. So as an assistant, and then later on as a manager of television, I, I really liked IP. And I saw the way film was going with remakes based off a toy based off a comic no one's heard of all those different things so I kind of felt television was going to eventually go in the same way where we aren't in the school age of scripted television I love that and I love that there's so many awesome diverse stories that are being told so that's so great but still you know sometimes it needs to be based off a format based off a comic based off of this piece of IP in order just to get more attention and to get that series order so um, I kind of felt that was the way things were going so I, I focused on looking for IP And also cultivating different writer relationships I made along the way and just trying to find great material.
1: So, moving into the VR of it all, can you walk us through what it was like transitioning from that sort of traditional scripted development process into virtual reality?
2: After Sonar Entertainment, I went to work with this company called Pillar Sean, which is a television production company. They did Wildfire, Greek, The Dead Zone, and Haven. um, And their new series is called Private Eyes, which is shot in Toronto airs on the global network in, in Canada and airs on uh, ion TV over here. So when I was working at that company, uh, we had an overall deal with E1 and secret location was down the hall from us. E1 had also invested in secret location. That's why the two companies were there in the same office And the first day I was there, the president of Secret Location came up to me and he said, so what do you want to do? And I said, I want to be the Roy Lee of television. I want to find Japanese IP and anime and turn it into television shows. And Roy Lee, you know, is kind of famous for The Grudge, The Ring, a lot of these different Japanese horror movies that he's turned into successful franchises in film. And he said, oh, we're meeting with Viz Media in a few weeks. You should join us for that meeting. So um, I got to join the Secret Location team for that. Later on, when I was bringing in writers, I would say... There's an awesome VR you know, company down the hall. Let's, you know, So we ended up doing a couple kind of double general meetings with writers that I brought in. And the president of the LA office was speaking at a panel and needed my help to bring the Oculus Rift system over to this panel and demo VR for people. So that day I gave uh, 30 people their first uh, experience in VR mm-hmm. and kind of thinking what I was doing at the time. That was by far the most rewarding experience I did. So when I'd heard that they were getting fully acquired by E1 and moving offices... I just decided in my heart that I wanted to move over with them, and it worked out.
0: So what drew you to virtual reality as a medium?
2: Uh, I've been a gamer my whole life, loyal Nintendo gamer to a fault, uh, <laughs> Game Boy, Game Boy Pocket, uh, Game Boy Color, Game Boy Advance, Nintendo 64, through the Wii, to, uh, Wii, Wii U? Wii U, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Wii U. I have one um, right behind you if you want to play. <laughs> nice. Um, and then uh, Xbox 360, and now now PS4, but... Yeah, I kind of been a lifelong gamer my whole life and have definitely seen the evolution of storytelling in games. And uh just, yeah, walking down the hall and trying VR, I was very impressed with the way the technology was and, you know, saw this was a thing of the future. Yeah, personally in television development, I've been kind of professionally stalled a little bit after being a manager of television at Sonar for 7 months. The next job I took was kind of an executive assistant, office manager, development coordinator position, kind of catch-all type of job. And from where I was, was either kind of waited out and try to get promoted again or jump to another company to be an assistant to help to get promoted again. So I was kind of at a professional kind of standstill in television development and just decided to take a jump and take a risk and try something new. I haven't regretted it. It's been great.
1: What do you feel are the unique
2: challenges of developing content for VR? So with television, it's a lot easier because there are more than 30 networks, right, to pitch and sell to in VR. In terms of funders, you have Google, who makes a Google Daydream headset. You have Oculus, uh, owned by Facebook, who makes Oculus Rift and their new headsets. You have HTC Vive, who um, yeah, also makes that headset. So there's just less funding available, and it's uh, yeah, not 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 the same thing as going around and pitching to a bunch of networks and trying to get funding for your project. It's kind of like of the headset market and the number of people buying headsets. How much do you expect to make a return on whatever you're making, and then kind of make your budget. Uh, to fit that. We happen to be a Canadian company. I'm one of the five token Americans who work in the company from the LA office. (laughs) But in the Toronto office, um, which is in the E1 building, we regularly apply to the Canada Media Fund, um, the OMDC Fund, and these other kind of government soft money incentives. So we're able to raise a lot of the financing for our projects through that. Same way that, you know, Disney wants to make everything in Georgia, Uh, for all their movies because of the insane tax rebates and incentives they have to shoot in Georgia. It's the same way that we uh, benefit from being a Canadian company and able to fund a lot of our projects that way. From there, you know, my job is to go and try to get additional funding or to figure out the distribution for it and try to get some funding from distributors. But there's just a lot less funding out there. Hmm. Uh, It's probably the main challenge.
1: Would you say that the, the different
2: devices are essentially the equivalent of TV networks? From a funding perspective, that's the way I'm looking at it. But the, the best way to kind of explain VR is that you have mobile VR. So that's different headsets where you download apps on your phone, launch an app, throw it into a headset, and you're watching VR that way. And kind of the question I ask you guys is how much would you spend on a phone app? What's the max you would spend? Would you guys spend two ninety nine on an app? Yeah, yeah. Sounds about right. Would you spend four ninety nine? Depends <laughs> on the kind of app. <laughs> yeah, no, like nine like ninety nine above, 99 and above, like, probably not. So it's just hard to monetize for mobile VR in general. Um, Unless you're making something for free or at a very low price, you're not going to monetize very well in in mobile. Um, PlayStation VR is really doing the best. It's just a $400 system on top of your PlayStation VR plugs right in. And people are used to buying games at $19.99 and above. So they have no qualm with buying a VR content for their PSVR. The other two kind of premium headsets out there right now are Oculus Rift and HTC Vive, both of which require a very robust gaming PC to run, the reason being is that video games are run at 60 frames a second, whereas VR, um, it needs to be uh, 90 frames a second per kind of eye hole. So it's, yeah, 90 frames a second times two, um, and the computer is always tracking the headset. Where are you looking? Where are you looking? Where are you looking? Where are you in space? Where are the two hand controllers? So for full room scale VR, it's just a very intensive computational need, which is why you need these yeah $2,000 PCs to run these two headsets. And that's why just not that many people have VR right now. So if they spent that much money to buy a headset and have that PC, they'll spend, you know, 14 dollars whatever to buy a VR game. And a lot of VR arcades use these kind of room scale VR headsets. They're, they're the best headsets out there and give the, you know, Premiere VR experience. Um, The the other way someone told me to look at it was the the head of PSVR said, um, if a PS4 game comes out and 5% of all PS4 users buy it, it's a huge hit. For PSVR, you know, that user base is much smaller. So maybe it's 1.5 million, 2 million, you know, four, you know, I don't know the numbers. So the PSVR user base is much smaller. If you take 8% of that audience buying your game in 1999, then you know, what kind of budget you could try to have for this. So, most of our budgets are around, you know, anywhere from 800,000 to 1.2 million is a safe place to hope to get your money
0: back. So, what are some of the unique capabilities and limitations of VR content compared to traditional scripted TV and things like that?
2: If we were talking about game engine and animated VR projects, I think that's where it really shines because that, that that's where you can kind of tell really unique stories where you can use the entire space around you and that you're blocking people off from looking at their phones and tweeting and doing stuff while they're watching television. You're really, you have a captive audience. So you can tell really unique stories. And the power of VR is really to put people in a place and give them an experience that they couldn't otherwise have. So there's one that's a really good piece called Dear Angelica, and it's a uh, kind of mother-daughter relationship story. You're following a daughter who's, whose mother is an actress and she's always gone and doing movies and she doesn't have a strong relationship with her mother but you're kind of in this dream space between her where her mother's telling her stories where uh, her mother's you know calling her from set and you kind of go into this dream dreamscape type space and it's really really powerful uh, as for live action uh, there's a lot more limitations so uh, filming in vr is kind of more equivalent to theater so you have a Uh, camera setup it's maybe 16 gopros in a circle on a rig (laughs) and you have a couple um, you add like a couple more pointing up um, but the bottom is going to be the stand so you have to digitally paint out the stand Um, you put it there yell action jump behind the couch and you have to really choreograph it so the actors know where to walk where to stand Um, if they're walking closer to the camera that's your close-up you can't you know edit as much so a lot of these are more kind of static scenes and you have to dress up the environment and have a lot of different things going on to make it interesting and, you know, have for repeat viewing.
1: Do you feel like light field technology is a short-term prospect or a long-term play in terms of filming content and live action in an
2: environment where people can move physically through? So kind of with the technological challenges of VR that I was describing earlier, I would compare the graphics more to a PS2 than a PS4 these days. And uh, with the cameras, um, with the file size needed to... It's, it's sixteen cameras. You know, it's a bunch of cameras that you're compiling together, and you could put GoPros in there, you could put uh, red cameras in there, you could do whatever you want in these kind of different camera rigs. But it's going to be so much data, so that's why things you know can look a little choppy at the moment. But you know, each headset's getting better. I really recommend the Oculus Go. I watched a um, piece the other day, and it looked really fantastic and a lot, a lot less blocky than normal. So um, light field technology and and motion capture and stuff like that is more for Getting actors into digital pieces, and it, and it looks good. It's getting there. It's getting better. You know, each year I go to Sundance and different things, and I'm, I'm impressed more and more each time with where people are going with this.
0: So, what's the difference between omniscient VR and POV VR?
2: So, a lot of the power of VR that I was being to earlier is putting you in a situation that you would normally be in. So there's one piece that's POV, that's really powerful, where you're kind of with a group of these teenagers, and um, there's an African American teenager, Latino, d- different groups, um, they're talking casually, then they go into a convenience store, there's a misunderstanding and, and uh, you know, the African American kid gets shot. So kind of seeing things from their perspective and being there with them is you know, much more powerful than just, you know, seeing in 2d. And, you know, that that's more of a you know, point of view type thing. If you were that person getting shot. So omniscient is, yeah, kind of being their, their person floating around.
0: And so that, that POV kind of allows the audience to have more empathy and kind of put them in someone's shoes and and see that world from their perspective, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Good answer, Nick.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So moving on to the, to the story level, can you walk us through sort of what a VR script looks like, especially when you compare it to a normal traditional screenplay? And is that language still evolving?
2: I'll speak to one project that we made in-house. It's called the Great Sea. It's based off the of Philip K. Dick short story that hasn't been adapted before. That we're able to adapt into VR. Uh, we worked with a comic book writer named Brandon Monclair, very talented guy. You know, part of choosing him was because, as a comic book writer, you need to know what's going on at all time, panel to panel. What's you know what you're not seeing, what you are seeing. So he was really great to work with, and it was just yeah, just kind of like a traditional script with more detail. It's, it, I'd say it's yeah, it's probably more equivalent to animation in terms of. Uh, you're you're kind of laying it out there for what the environment artists and the director and other people are going to do to create that full three d space. So it wasn't that different?
0: Is the writer kind of specifying this is what's happening and you know if it's a three sixty VR, like this is what's happening in the front, this is what's happening in the back, or is that more of the director's choice? They just the writer just paints the scene and then the director decides what we see.
2: yeah, it's it's director's choice too, where where the camera is going to be pointing forward and the camera's going to move and all those different things. But, yeah, I mean, if the writer was directing the piece, I'm sure. He had you know, ideas for that, but he kind of leaned on our VR expertise to fully imagine everything he was
0: writing down. It's interesting you say that comic book writers are particularly good at this. Do you find that it's a difficult adjustment for perhaps TV or film writers, or are there, there are other kinds of writers that lend themselves well to this medium?
2: The writers we're looking for either have potentially worked in games before, because a lot of projects we're working on are games designed for VR arcades and whatnot. And then for the narrative pieces, yeah, just, just someone who has kind of animation or... CGI, um, experience because, um, yeah, a lot of this is going to be done in post. Uh, and then for the live action, kind of what I was saying earlier, yeah, writers who write for theater and understand the full space and know that each actor needs to be doing something at some point in time, because you, never, you don't know where the audience is looking. So, um, writers who are able to kind of imagine that full thing is who we're looking for. Writers who have a certain style and want, you know, uh, punch-ins, close-ups, you see what the guy's writing on the notepad, none of that's going to happen in VR. You have a lot less control. Yeah. And that that's more what the writer needs to know.
0: So you mentioned VR gaming. What are the big differences between just sort of a VR experience and then having that as a game instead?
2: So kind of back to the, the challenges I was speaking to earlier, people are used to paying for games. If they're going to go online and play against friends, if they're going to team up, do a cooperative, if they're going to go to a VR arcade and pay five bucks for this, pay a certain amount of money for 30 minutes in VR, people are used to paying for that for narrative experiences uh, unfortunately yeah we've, we've really trained people that this is free you can get it on YouTube you can get it wherever you can steal your mom's HBO Go account and, <laughs> and watch Game of Thrones so um, people are not uh, yeah, not not used to paying for cinematic content as much um, as they were in the past so it's really a challenge we can make a really good cinematic piece and the, the piece I was speaking to earlier we're premiering it at the Venice International Film Festival Potentially, you know, people want to acquire it and distribute it. We have our own distribution means. So what I've been lining up right now is kind of treating it like an independent film. So we're launching it at a festival. We are opening it in a bunch of VR arcades and VR cinemas worldwide for an exclusive theatrical window, if you will. So right now I have my distribution exec hat on um, and I'm making a bunch of uh, agreements with these different arcades. And then we'll offer it to consumers to buy uh, on their headsets. And we just have to figure out the appropriate price point where they'll actually do it. Also, yeah, the other, the other challenge is Oculus Rift and Google Daydream and a lot of these kind of first-party platforms I was talking about before have funded good content to be exclusive to their system. Just like, you know, if you want to play God of War, you have to buy a PS4. If you want to play, well, it used to be Halo, uh, some, something on Xbox One to buy an Xbox One. So, you know, these just in the, how these consoles have unique first-party exclusive yeah. titles, um, same things for these different headsets. So uh, they have made some really good content and a lot of the content I show people as an example of good VR, is kind of this exclusive first-party content, but it's for free. So how do you compete with that?
1: From a narrative standpoint, you mentioned earlier that you are a big horror fan. Do you feel there are any particular genres more suited to VR
2: than others? Yeah, just a lot of people working in VR. We you know, we love technology, we love sci-fi, we love uh, the future and the beyond and, and where, where things are going to go. So uh, that's a good uh, fit for VR, for sure, because you can... Yeah, do, do things that you can't in other mediums. And horror, you know, for sure works really well. I just watched a fantastic piece um, done by Skybound Entertainment based off the, um, this interactive theater play called Delusions. Um, they adapted that into VR and it's really, really well done. I really recommend it uh, whenever they release it.
0: So branded content is a big aspect of VR. How do you balance the requirements of a particular company or brand with still keeping it artistically strong and engaging? So the way
2: I'm going to answer this question is before we were acquired by E1, we used to do a lot of really good service work. And VR had a golden age where uh, we we did a project for Mountain Dew. We did a project for General Electric. We did a project with the LA Philharmonic. We did a project with PBS Frontline. And these jobs are actually really, really fun and creatively fulfilling to do. So TNT came to us when the alienist was coming out and they said, we want to do a VR experience for this. So pitches what you got. So as a creative executive, eventually, we worked with a writer director to come up with some pitches and stuff. But the first kind of wave of what well, we pitched for this was my job. So it was really, really fun to to write out a bunch of different ideas for how we do it. So when a network is ordering a VR companion piece to go along with an upcoming show or a new season of a show, usually the marketing department drafts up something and the marketing department has an idea of what they want to do. But then they go out to a couple different VR companies and we pitch our ideas on it. So we might say your core concept is flawed, it's going to be $5 million. There's no way it's going to be $2 million. It's going to be five. And this is why. So instead, here's our pitch. Or we say, within this kind of box that you've given us, here's our ideas for really cool different ideas that you guys might not be thinking of. In terms of branded content right now, it's it's all about how many eyeballs you're going to get. So how many people have these headsets or are going to actually watch the 360 ad? Not so much. So right now, most VR is actually watched on YouTube 360. And you, know, you could just kind of click your mouse and drag it around to see the full 360 image. That's actually how most people watch VR these days. And there's another thing called a uh, magic window where um, if you hold your smartphone out and kind of move it in a circle around the room, you can see the full 360 image that way. So without a headset, those are two ways people watch VR. Not not the way it's meant to be watched, but people watch it that way right now. So And to that point, a
1: lot of higher end VR experiences that tether to gaming consoles or PCs, How soon do you think VR as a sort of this immersive experience will become as common as having a TV or computer or any um, normal device in a
2: home? The price of the headsets need to come down. Uh, That's the bottom line. And today I brought a couple headsets with me. I'm not going to move them to disturb the mic, but uh, this is the (laughs) Oculus Go headset. It's 200 bucks and it's VR out of the box. So you don't need to put a phone in here. You don't need to do anything. Just hit the power button. Uh, we'll we'll play with it afterwards. Sorry, listeners, but um, <laughs> we'll all, uh, post photos of uh, devices on the show notes. Yeah. So um, yeah, you just uh, hit the power button, throw it in your head, and you could watch 360 video. So how the premium room scale headsets work is there are external cameras tracking where your headset is, where the controllers are. So you're walking around the full room and really getting that feel. The Oculus Go does not have that right now. There is a it's called Project Santa Cruz in development where uh, Facebook is going to come out with a headset just like this, doesn't need to be plugged into a PC, doesn't need a phone, doesn't need anything. We call it standalone VR, which is a headset that you could purchase that will offer full room-scale movement. I tried it out at GDC. It's fantastic. Very excited for it. HCC has a headset called Vive Focus. It's only out in China right now, but we hope it comes to North America soon. And that's also kind of standalone VR where... You just buy the headset and you can play it. So right right now, it just needs to get smoother for people to get into VR, and it needs to be a lower price point for people to be able to buy it. Once those number of headset owners pick up, then people will be able to justify spending more money on making bigger budget, better content. It's a chicken and egg game where, you know, if there's content, people will buy headsets, but if the headsets aren't out there, people aren't going to make really big content for it yet. So um, Oculus Rift, they just made Marvel Powers United, um, a big cooperative VR game where you get to be Wolverine or Deadpool or the Hulk nice. or uh, whoever you want to be or Storm <laughs> um, and go and fight a bunch of uh, people, kind of arena-style brawler. So that's one of the bigger budget pieces that come out, and I really hope that does well for them and does well for the industry. We just need more people to have headsets, oh. and the technology is improving every year, and the content will come along with it. So uh, that's my is to try to make content when when we started making the great sea for example um we started making it probably last november december is when we were writing it we started doing environment concept uh, character art all that all that stuff and it's releasing you know kind of now at the end of august at the time we didn't know the oculus go headset was coming out anytime soon but when i'm talking to these theater owners they'd rather have it on this headset or they you know want it on vive and these other headsets coming out so if it's a hit we'll be able to make it for these other headsets but at the time we didn't know so that's kind of the challenge with making content, not knowing what your what platform you're aiming for, and you know how, how the landscape's going to change months months from now when your piece actually comes out.
0: What do you think about the kind of positioning and viability of home VR compared to VR arcades, which are now popping up like the IMAX one over near the Grove, the Void, at the Glendale Galleria? What are the big differences between these two, and do you think that both are going to continue to exist in their own ways compared to sort of like movie theaters and home entertainment, or what does it look like to you?
2: So our company is really focusing on. Location based entertainment, uh, l b e vr right now, for the precise reason that there aren't that many homeowners of these headsets yet until that time comes when you know these these uh, more affordable, easier headsets come out at home, we're not we're not going to count on making our money back at home. So we're really making experiences that work for out of home and our first title uh, is called Blasters of the Universe. Uh, we first released it in Steam early access. That means while the game is still in development, you can buy the game at a lower price point and just get the first level or kind of see it in, in works. So we had an early access, then we released it on Vive and Oculus Rift. Then the PSVR came out and that was, you know, much more successful headset. So we ended up making PSVR version and now we're kind of getting those sales. but then at the same time, we were trying to get it out to VR arcades. So we now have it in 113, I think, arcades worldwide in nine different countries. And that revenue is not huge, but it helps. Most of these people who don't have these headsets at home uh, get to go play it in arcades. We ended up doing a tournament among 10 different arcades working together to play the game and compete for top scores. Uh, we think esports is very very important for PC and other other consoles and it's going to be important for VR in the future for sure. So there are kind of the the one that Nick Nick mentioned, The Void. So that that's a model that is actually going to make money. So it's, you know, a team of four people, I think it's 30 bucks and it's about a 15 minute experience. It's really good. It's like a full scripted experience. There's Star Wars one in particular is my favorite. So yeah, I just said that uh, the other
0: day. It was really fun.
2: Awesome. Yeah, yeah. You uh, for for listeners who haven't tried it out, it's uh, you are rebel spies yeah. and your uh, three friends are all stormtroopers. And you walk around. In the first room, you're on a spaceship, and there's a they you know have a seat on the platform, and the platform's actually rumbling. It's actually there. And then you step out, and you're on the lava planet Mustafar, and there's heat and there's smells, and it really feels like you're there. So it's just a fully immersive, awesome experience with 4D effects too. Hide it and make it even more real. So it's kind of a throughput thing. So you get four people every 15 minutes, or they're a little faster than that. That That's a business that makes money. And if you're at downtown Disney, and you have a bunch of people are just wandering by and want to try it, or you have people buying tickets in advance, a combination of that, they're going to do okay. And there's another system called Hologate that we track. So it's kind of a four-player Vive setup for room-scale people. And that's a system that's sold to family entertainment centers, bowling alleys, movie theaters, whatever but it's very approachable. There's screens kind of showing you know, what the game is. Um, they're usually five to 10 minute games and just a you know, team of two, team of four, whatever can go spend five bucks and play it. So a couple of these systems are, are getting good throughput and are making money. So that's kind of what we think w- was going to make money in the near term in VR. These kind of smaller arcades um, usually have a uh, a la carte menu. So you go and you pay however much for 30 minutes of VR, And you go into a launcher where you can choose any game you want. And you play a game for two minutes. I had enough, move on something else. Wow, this is really fun. Play it for 15 minutes. Come back next time, play it for another 20 minutes, whatever you want. So um, I think these are all really good things for the VR industry right now, just to give people an opportunity and access to the technology that is otherwise a little tougher to get to.
1: And when it comes to scripted VR experiences, what do you feel makes for a good VR narrative as opposed to a bad
2: VR narrative? I'll talk about delusions for a little bit. So that that live action piece that I saw last week, that I was so impressed by. It was good, detailed, really interesting environments where this actually comes down to production design. You want to look around. You want to see everything that's going on. When you have multiple characters in the scene, each one of them is doing something interesting. They kind of break into this scary house. They're supposed to meet up with someone. It's a couple. And then the first character they meet is this woman with a knife. So you're like, what is she going to do? And you're kind of watching her, you're kind of watching the couple who's scared, and you're you're looking around the whole kind of messy room that they're first in. Yeah, in terms of live action 360 video, it's just where you're constantly engaging the viewer with different things going on around them, and you want repeat viewing. Like later on, there's a scene where they're encountering like the scary guy is going to kill them. So the three characters are separated, one's stuck in a closet, the other two are th- in this other room, and you're kind of coming back and forth between the two. So I thought that was a thousand more engaging scene. W- one thing that works really well in VR is scale, when things are really small or really, well, particularly really big. So not not to spoil anything, but the best scene in that movie is when the main character wanders into this room, and Everyone's kind of been turned into puppets and the camera pans across the room and across the table and you're kind of busy looking at the puppets and what the heck is going on. And it's just really, really terrifying. And then later you're kind of stuck under the table and there's this giant that walks into the room and it's just just so good. It's just so well done. Um, There's one other piece I want to bring up an example. It's called Door Number One. Uh, It's available on the Hulu VR app done by uh, my friends at RIDE Media. And this one's really, really funny where you're um, kind of following a character as he's going to his high school reunion. You, the viewer, are part of this member of friends. So based on where you look, you choose who you're going to follow. And either you're kind of chasing the girl of your dreams to try to talk to her again, or you're going to go smoke pot with Snoop Dogg. <laughs> um, there's lots, lots of people who show up and you, you, know, you, don't, you, know, you can choose which, which character you, you follow so. I wish you a
0: dog <laughs> do you think that we're going to see sort of like a Spielberg of VR who becomes a name in the format and really is drawn to you know as a director or a writer that kind of thing
2: I would have said the Oculus Story Studio, you know, Sally got disbanded about a year ago, but that particular group was made up of kind of ex-Pixar people who came together and formed this uh, really, really talented animation studio within Oculus. And each year they're putting out better and better pieces. So one was called Henry, featuring the voice of Elijah Wood as a hedgehog. I didn't (laughs) know if it was Elijah Wood, but it was really well done. And yeah, that piece, Dear Angelica, that I mentioned later was kind of the last piece they put out. It was really, really good. Actually, no. Next, um, Wolves in the Walls. It's kind of made up of the remnants of them. They're called Fable Now. And that piece is really, really well done. sodded at Sundance. That group is really talented and has uh, incubated a number of really talented writer um, directors. Sashka Unseld is one of them and there's one other group I would mention called Penrose. Eugene Kim is a really talented VR director. He um, did this piece called Alumet, which is fantastic, and their new piece, Arden's Wake, that hasn't come out yet. is really, really well done, and both of those are um, animated game engine pieces. Um, Their first piece was The Rose and I, a little shorter piece that you could watch as well, but they're they're really talented. So I'd say there's already a few.
1: How can someone who's interested in partaking in this medium on a creative level, whether it's uh, creating stories or narratives, can become
2: involved? either on a spec level or through companies? Uh, for live action, there are a number of cheap cameras available. A lot of them are kind of double-sided 180 cameras for YouTubers and people like that. So uh, the first answer is to yeah, buy a camera and experiment and try stuff. So if, um, if you want to be yeah live action VR creative, is yeah just go and make things. Animated stuff, is a, it's a bit tougher. Um, you probably have to know people who are working in that space and, and make a project with your friends. The two main programming languages for VR are Unity, and the Unreal Engine. Um, Unreal is used in a lot of different video games and stuff and uh, computer games. Unity, I think, was a 3D imaging tool originally, but has been used as a programming language for a lot of uh, mobile games and and different things like that, and I think it's generally easier. So uh, entry-level ways, just take a Unity class and learn a little bit about programming there. And um, a lot of these games have been made by small developers. So Beat Saber, which is the most successful VR game to date, was made by three people in the Czech Republic and their CEOs in Venice. And there's another game called Audio Shield, just two programmers in their apartment, their garage, wherever they made it. So if you come up with a simple concept and have a couple of talented friends, you can make it together. And
1: just do uh, movements
0: and music together. And that's a VR success. (laughs) That that is. But uh, what kind of samples are you reading from writers you're interested in working with in VR? For VR, it's more that
2: I'm able to tackle some of the bigger IP that I really wish I could have gotten in television right now. So because VR is a new medium, and because not not many stuff has been adapted into VR yet, I'm very excited to yeah, have the opportunity to play with some bigger IP than I would have otherwise. I'm still, yeah, still just just as I was before, I'm still chasing big IP. And in terms of samples, um, there's different yeah managers and agents who send just just regular script samples to me. And I'm just reading those. There was one that had a 360 video rom com series. It was just a regular script. I just imagined it in, in VR, but uh, I'm just looking at regular samples. So if the writing's good, I'll meet with the person. And if the person, you know, feels like they can conceptualize things in the VR space, then there's more conversations to be had.
1: So you've already spoken to this a little bit, but what do you feel is the
2: most impressive VR experience that you've seen? And why? My favorite VR experience is one done by Justin Roiland, the co-creator of Rick and Morty. Uh, It's called Accounting. And in this uh, very trippy VR experience, you're you're supposed to be an accountant, and uh, you're doing different things, and um, your bosses are talking to you through your headset, and you end up getting these different VR headsets and going deeper and deeper into different levels of virtual reality within (laughs) the experience. So very meta, very, very well done. Yeah, you end up kind of breaking the virtual world and go on trial and a lot, a lot of really quirky, interesting things happen to you. It's like so, VR Inception. Yeah, yeah. So um, maybe there's a trend to this. There's another piece called virtual, virtual reality where um, uh, you, as a human, are kind of an assistant to these different robots in a virtual world, and you're supposed to yeah, help out these, you know, assist these different virtual people, but things go wrong yeah ends up bringing the fourth wall too so maybe maybe that's just what i personally like but yeah those two pieces um are among the most impressive as i mentioned before the void kind of these these free realm vr experiences where you get all these 4d effects are, are so impressive um so I, I definitely say check out star wars at the void or the ghostbusters one if that's closer to you jurassic world did a vr experience that's at all the Dave and busters right now and it's a five minute vr experience and you're in a jeep and it moves around and stuff it's it's uh as good as any theme park ride. So I definitely recommend that. The out of home space. And then another I think it was originally a PC or PS4 game is called super hot. It's kind of a matrix simulator that that translates really well into VR where as you move the enemies move. So pick up a knife or a gun or whatever, and you're shooting and dodging different things and everything's coming out to you. Really fun. Those are my recommendations.
0: So where do you see the future of VR heading?
2: I think VR is always going to persist in the out-of-home world where you're able to deliver a type of experience that someone can't just get by setting up a headset in their apartment. So that that's going to persist, and it's just going to get better and better. There was a piece at Tribeca called Jack, which is interactive theater in VR. I sadly, didn't get to try, but they're, I heard they're retooling it and potentially trying to bring it to other places. Yeah, everyone in VR loves interactive theater, and I know there's going to be some kind of marriage of the two in the future. And besides that... Um, just, just as the headsets get into the home, there's going to be more and more different opportunities to take people places and um, give them experiences they wouldn't have otherwise. These sure. um, kind of Google cardboard headsets here that are very inexpensive, uh, people are already using it at schools to do VR field trips for kids. I think there's a lot of applications in medical and therapy um, where for people who can move, put them in a VR headset, give them you know more simulation and take them outside of the drab hotel room and, um, you know, television's great and they can watch daytime soap operas or maybe they had a little VR to switch it up. So I think, yeah, there's a lot of different kind of therapy uses for VR. Yeah, I'm, I'm personally um, very passionate about the environment and people don't believe in global warming still. For whatever reason, hopefully they can watch, I think it's Discovery or maybe it's New York Times. One of those two VR apps has a, you know, kind of documentary on Greenland and you can see all the ice melting if you still don't believe it. You can watch the VR documentary. We could like drop ice down the back of your shirt or something and uh, <laughs> scare people. But yeah, I think I think there's... Lots of good applications for VR in the future. Holodeck's coming soon. What are your own personal goals and uh, career aspirations? I I believe in any job you have, you should just always be learning and meeting new people. So uh, right now, I started as creative executive here. I've moved over now manager strategy and business development. So it's a bit more of kind of figuring out distribution, figuring out how different companies can work with us, how we can work with other companies. So Applying those business development skills more broadly and technology and VR is where I see, you know, the future of my career going. The thing I love with entertainment is you never know what you can be doing a couple years from now. And, you know, when I started, I wanted to be a writer. Later on, I wanted to be a literary manager, producer, I have a client become as famous as Shonda Rhimes, be their Betsy Beers, run their production company. And I still you know, could, could return to literary management someday. I, I, I love script development and working with writers more than anything else. But I just love that today you know, my job has everything to do with technology and learning new things. So personally, I'm growing. Intellectually, I'm growing. And this is great. So um, wherever the VR industry goes or wherever kind of technology, immersive media goes, um, I will follow it.
1: All right. Before we go, we got some final questions. Uh, Number one, what are you
2: watching on TV slash experiencing in VR right now? Uh, so, yeah, so what's great about working in VR is now I get to watch TV and film for pleasure, um, as opposed to <laughs> trying to watch the first episode of everything just to see who's doing what. Me and my wife are watching Handmaid's Tale season two, and whenever it gets too heavy, we uh, take a break with lighter fare. And right now we're watching a lot of anime. Uh, recently, we just finished Sword Art Online, which was picked up by Skydance to develop into a TV show. I really recommend the first half of the first season. Just stop there. It goes downhill. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. But we watched it just because we were too attached to the characters. Asides that, we res- recently subscribed to Crunchyroll and we watched all of them. Um, it's called Food Wars. It's a cooking anime with yeah. a, a bunch of these really intense competitions. It's really, really well <laughs> done. Um, Shokugeki no Soma is the Japanese name for that. Uh, we're watching Attack on Titan Season 3. I have movie pass, so I'm I'm, I'm going to watch three movies a month now. Now that the plan has changed, but yeah, I feel uh, like when this episode comes out, <laughs> I'll just be gone. <laughs> yeah, there's there's so many different things coming out on Netflix every single week, so it's hard to keep up. Do
0: you have any last pieces of advice for writers or producers who uh, would want to get into VR?
2: VR or anything in general is just just write and finish things. So there's so many aspiring writers I meet along the way along my entire entertainment career path and lots of people I've wanted to help. If they have a finished sample when I'm done talking to them, they can send it. You know, great, I could read and give them notes. And then many writers, I just don't hear from again. You know, I offer to read something and, you know, six months later... I was like, huh, you know, where's where that sample I, I thought I was going to read? Mm-hmm. So my biggest advice is really just, just write and finish things because you need high-quality samples in your pocket to show at any given time whenever the situation arrives. So if you're a comedy writer, I think it's good to write a variety of things, have a workplace, have a multicam, have a family comedy because you never know like what... You could tailor your sample for whoever your reader is. And if this reader works at a production company that does workplace comedies and whatever, maybe that's a sample you want to pull out. If they work on Modern Family time to pull out your family multicam sample and use that to get a writer's PA or whatever kind of position on the show. Mm -hmm. So um, it's just about having high-quality samples to pull out at the right time. For VR specifically, it's just try things out. If you have watched a little bit of VR you're ahead of 90% of the game. So um, yeah, for yeah, kind of general meetings and, and uh, advice in general, it's just wherever you're walking in to meet with someone, if you've studied a little bit about what they do or a little bit about what their company has made, that just goes a long way to show that you care, that you're interested. And that, that, that's really big for me.
1: And lastly, do you have any resources, be it books, apps, software, anything for anyone who wants to learn more about VR and emerging forms of storytelling?
2: I highly recommend the podcast called Voices of VR by Kent Bai. Interviews a lot of people in this space, and I think there's more than 670 episodes out right now, so you can find an interview about any subject you want in there. Road to VR is kind of my equivalent of Deadline that I read and subscribe to. There's the VR Scout Reports, another good podcast. And... Google Alerts. My big thing yeah, for this job has been Google Alerts. So I just do virtual reality and VR arcade. And then esports are like the three Google Alerts I have. And I just um, yeah, go through and see which articles I want to read each time. That's really been huge for me to catch all the different companies
0: popping up, the new headsets and things like that. So before we go, just a reminder that our Paper Tease competition is still open for submissions. If you have a TV pilot teaser of eight pages or less, give me any format, any genre. You can enter that for free at paperteam.co/teaser to potentially get feedback on air from us and win prizes from our sponsors, as well as be eligible for our Paper Team mentorship. But that brings us to the end of our episode. So thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in, and thanks to Michael for joining us. Thank you, guys. As
1: always, you can get all the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 102.
0: And if you want to leave us a review, we would love that, and you can do it at paperteam.co slash iTunes. All of those reviews are going to help us attract more listeners and build our community. And this episode of Paper Team was brought to you by Roadmap Writers. Roadmap Writers gives screenwriters the tools needed to take their skills to the next level, with courses taught by industry executives. In just two years, Roadmap has helped 49 writers find representation. Visit roadmapwriters.com and use the code ROADMAP, all one word, all caps, to save $15 off your first program.
1: And as always, I'm on
0: Twitter at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. Are you on Twitter, Michael? I don't use Twitter. <laughs> where, where can listeners find you Facebook, online Facebook, if you Facebook want to Facebook and LinkedIn.
1: <laughs> we'll uh, put in the LinkedIn in the show notes. And if you have any thoughts, feedback, ideas for future episodes, you can send them to ask at paperteam.co. And next week, we are doing our third uh, Paper Scraps monthly episode all about paper teas and paper teasers. I'm excited. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: All right, we'll catch up with you then.
1: All right, see ya.